I preached the sermon that I'm about to preach to you guys two days ago um, up in Atlanta for a class that I was taking, and I preached it in front of a dozen other pastors. And what I learned from that experience is that y'all are easy to preach to. <laughs> uh, not that I'm not that I'm not nervous when I get up here in front of you guys. I am. Um, y'all may, y'all may, y'all may. I'll tell you a little secret about myself. Y'all may notice. About 10 minutes prior to the service, I disappear. And uh, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'll, I'll disappear into the men's bathroom stall in there, and I say a prayer. <laughs> I say, uh, you know, God, please take away my anxiety, my fear, my worry, my doubt. Just help me to preach the message you would have me to preach and speak the words you would have me to speak. And uh, I, do that, I do that without fail. And that's, I, I think God uses that time to, uh, to bring me together. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you, preaching in front of a a dozen other pastors is uh, it's a whole new ball game, man, and they don't mind telling you what they think about it. It's a uh, it's a humbling experience. Speaking of which, we're going to be talking a little bit about humility today, as we did in our uh, our small group this morning in uh, in Sunday school. Um, <clears throat> but the source that we're going to use, the text that we're going to use, the scripture that we're going to use is is a parable out of the Gospel of Luke, and it's really become one of my favorite, personal favorites of all of Jesus' parables that he tells, for I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's a lot of thematic elements in this story. In other words, you, there's a lot of themes, there's a lot of uh, um, meanings, there's a lot of applications that you can pull out of this, out of this parable of Christ. There's just so many of them in such a short, short uh, portion of Scripture. And the other thing is, is I always get a kick out of Jesus when he tells this particular parable, um, and, and, and I'll kind of, it always makes me laugh to, 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 uh, to a degree, and I'll kind of explain to you, explain to you why that is um, as we get into it a little bit. Uh, so what I'm going to ask you this morning is, uh, some of y'all are going to be very familiar with this, okay, if, if not all of you, um, but despite that, if you are familiar with this story, what I'm going to ask you to do is I want us to try to take a fresh look at this. I want us to try to take a fresh look at this uh, very well-known parable and see what kind of new insights we might be able to glean out of it. We've heard it a lot. We've heard it over and over and over, especially if you've been in the church. And I hope it's new to you. If it is, if it is awesome. But if you have, let's try to get some new insight in, in, uh, into what we might be able to discover in this story that maybe we have never considered before. And at the same time, maybe we can refresh and maybe we can reemphasize some of those other insights that we might have learned from the past. <clears throat> so the scripture we're going to look at today is, is uh, oftentimes referred to as the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Somebody actually mentioned it this morning again in, in, uh, in our Sunday school class. And you find it in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 18. It's just a few verses, six or, six or seven verses. It's Luke 18, 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14, and I'm going to read through, I want us to read through this together first, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to break this story down for you and give it some context, because you really can't get the fullness, you can't really fully appreciate what Christ is getting at and, and the emphasis Christ is putting on unless you understand some of the background of what's going on here. So starting in verse 9. Luke writes, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself 
And he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's the word of God for the people of God. First thing I want to point out to you is something I've never, ever picked up on. All, all the times I've read this parable, all the times I've read this story, this is the first time that I ever noticed this. And it comes at the very beginning. It's right there in verse 9. And it's easy to glean over. It's easy to gloss it over if you're not looking for it. But the author here, Luke, does something really, really interesting. He writes those words, he says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Now, what's interesting about that? What's interesting about that is it's an editorial comment. Most of the time, you're just going to see the authors going into Jesus' story. But Luke wants to make it a point here. He wants the reader to understand who this particular parable is being told to. It, it's being told to people <laughs> who were confident of their own righteousness and those who looked down on everyone else. In other words, Jesus is directly talking to you folks. Not, not you folks, but <laughs> these folks. More than likely, his audience consisted of, 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 the group, of, a, of a group of Pharisees, as, as they often did. Uh, so certainly when Luke writes these words... He's more than and and considering you know the the, the run-ins that Jesus had had and the, and the condemnations that Jesus had had uh, for the Pharisees. Certainly, those are some of the people that he's talking to and talking about. If you'll go throughout Luke's gospel, uh, Luke doesn't give him a whole lot of a whole lot of grace either. He, he really clearly identifies uh, the Pharisees as, as being dishonest and uh, and uh, even adulterous and uh, shallow in their religion. Fakes, in other words, fakes. Self-righteous, prideful people who are also religious people. So that really jumped out to me uh, that Luke would put that in there. These are the people Jesus was talking to, he says, when he told this story. So in the next several verses, Jesus, we hear Christ's words, we read Christ's words. And he starts by identifying two different people that go into the temple to pray. One of them he identifies as a Pharisee. One of them he identifies as a tax collector. Now, we just talked a little bit about the Pharisees. And uh, some of you know we, know, we know that Jesus condemned them for a lot of stuff and, and uh, had a lot of run-ins with them. They know, we know that we remember that they were constantly questioning Jesus um, about his authority and, and his theology and all kind of things. And we generally look down on the Pharisees in the church today because we know the story. We, we, we've read these stories for years and years and years, and, and, and we generally look down on them. What we need to understand when we read this in a historical context is we always remember that the Pharisees were still a religious people. Okay? As a matter of fact, in that culture, the Pharisees would have been considered to be kind of the holiest of the holy because they did, at least outwardly, they did all the right things. Okay? They knew what, what we call the Torah. 
the books of law in the Old Testament. They would have known those books backwards and forwards, and they would have followed all of those laws to a T. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee before he was converted on the road to Damascus during his encounter with Christ. Same story. Paul knew his stuff backwards and forwards. They were strict observers of the law, and consequently they were kind of considered to be very, very holy in that particular culture at the time. In contrast, the tax collector was kind of the lowest of the lowly. They were not well-liked, to say the least. As a matter of fact, they were, uh, they were oftentimes Jewish people. They were oftentimes Jewish people who were in league and who were employed by the oppressive Roman government that was oppressing the Jewish people. So you can certainly see why that culture would look down on them for that reason. Add to that the fact that they not only collected the taxes that were owed, but they gouged people by forcing them to pay other fees in order so, so that the taxpayers could line their pockets. Okay? So they were, they were doing, they were providing, they were causing economic hardship. Plus, they also dealt with Gentiles, and they dealt with Gentile money. In the eyes of the Jewish people of that culture, they would have been considered unclean. So to say that these people, the tax collectors, were, were disdained in this community, in this culture, would really, would really be an understatement. I, really, I don't think that you can really overstate or overemphasize how much this particular group would have been misliked. So anyway, both of these guys, they go into the temple to pray. And it says, the Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed. And this is important, too, that he said that he stood by himself. There would have been a specific place to pray when they went into the temple. And part of the ancient Jewish prayer posture was to stand, as opposed to kneeling or sitting or whatever. They would stand and they would pray. They would raise their hands, to, they would raise their hands something, something like this, and they would look up to the heavens. That was a common prayer posture. So that's why, that's, that's, that's why it's important that, 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 that Luke points out that they're standing. So he stands by himself, and he prays these words. He says, God... I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Stop right there for just a second. Already we can see the pretentiousness and the self-righteousness of this man's prayer and this man's heart coming through. Thank God I'm not like all of these other sinners, right? If we're honest with ourselves, some of us probably still do that to some degree or another today. But Jesus makes a point to pass this out. Thank you, God, that I'm not like so uh, all of these other people. But then he takes it a step farther, and this is the point. This is, this is where I get a kick out of Jesus because, because I think that he intentionally overdoes it a lot of times. Jesus has a, tend a tendency to exaggerate in order to get our attention. But he, gets, he takes it a step further when he's telling this story. So picture this scene. <laughs> not only does he say that, but he says, oh, yeah, thanks, God, that I'm not even like this tax collector here. Now, I don't know this. Um, the text doesn't say this, but they're, they're in the temple praying, right? I've got to assume probably they're in close proximity to each other, right, to some degree or another. And again, the text doesn't say this, but I, I, I kind of got to think that prayer was audible. I don't think that he was standing there praying, you know, mentally in his mind. He was probably saying this audible, audibly. So this guy's hearing it, you know. They're together, the same, occupying the same spot, occupying the same space. Thank God. Can y'all imagine that? Again, that's why I get a kick out of this. Can y'all imagine if that happened one Sunday morning following the sermon when we do this altar call? 
Thank God that I ain't like that dude. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so yeah, I think Jesus is exaggerating this to a great degree to point out how self-righteous this guy really was and uh, how, 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 um, how prideful he was because of his religion and his religious observances in his heart. And then, of course, he goes on to say, oh, yeah, and by the way, you know, I tithe and I, and I fast twice a week. I'm, you know, I'm just a great, great person. Then we get the prayer of the tax collector, and we get a completely different story. We get a completely different contrast to what we see in the heart and the physical posture. Again, that's why I think this physical posture is so important in this story compared to what we see in the Pharisee. He doesn't stand, for one thing. It says he stood at a distance. Remember I told you there would have been generally a spot where people would stand and pray. He didn't even go to that place to pray. He, he, stood, he stood away a little bit. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. Remember a second ago I told you the prayer posture was to stand like this and look up to heaven. It wouldn't even look up to heaven. He could not look God in the eye. But he beat his breast. Catholics still do this sometimes in their, in their liturgy. He beat his breast. That would have been a ritualistic sign of, of great remorse. It would have been a ritualistic sign of, of, of repentance, of having a contrite heart, humble heart, that type of thing. And he prays those words. He says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, at the conclusion in verse 14, like he has a propensity to do so often, Jesus undoubtedly shocked his audience who, when he was telling this story, I'm sure we can safely assume, believed that it was going to be the Pharisee who came out of this story justified and right before God and certainly not that dirty devious thieving tax collector his audience would have been shocked but Jesus does what he so often does in these stories he reverses the roles of the good and the bad the unrighteous and the righteous remember the story of the good Samaritan and other, other parables that he told he reverses the roles those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. I hope this grabs your attention a little bit this morning because, again, for those of us who have been in the church, this, this can, this can kind of have the tendency, like other Bible stories can do, you know, we've, we've heard it so much, we've heard it so often, that it, it fails to have an impact with us. It fails, it fails to touch us. We, 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 you know, we, we gloss over it. And again, we do that a lot. We do that a lot with a lot, with a lot of different Bible studies. It fails you know, to grab our attention. And we just kind of see it as one of Jesus' many, many teachings on the virtue of humility and the admonition against pride. Certainly, those are major aspects of this story. No doubt, no doubt about that. 
The virtue of humility is a huge thing. The admonition against pride is a huge thing, if not the main thing. Turning away from the, from the destructiveness, from the self-centeredness, from the self-absorption and the pride that come into play here that we see in the actions and the attitude of the Pharisee. Personally, and I told my group this morning, you know, I think pride is one of our sin, is one of our major sins. I think it's really at the heart of the vast majority of our sins, if you really think about it. I think that self-centeredness really is the foundation of, of the vast majority of those. You know, it's the idea of thinking and believing and acting out that I know better than God, for one thing. It's believing sometimes that we are better than God. It's placing our wants our desires, the way we want to think, the way we want to talk, the way we want to do things, placing our desires, which is pride, above what we know is the will of God and above the needs of others. Pride. Pride wrecks our world, church. Pride wrecks our world communally. I'm not just talking about our individual lives. Pride, just like any other sin, has a ripple effect. If you want to know what's wrong with our world today, and what's been wrong with it for a very, very, very long time, I think it all goes back to pride. But it also wrecks our personal relationships. And there's something we don't think about a whole lot. Pride, self-centeredness, self-absorption, whatever you want to call it, wrecks our personal relationships with other people. Certainly it wrecks our relationship with God. But here's the thing. just Again, just like any other sin, it hurts us in the long run, in the short run. We may not know it. We may not, we may not realize it. But self-absorption and pride is, is, is hurtful. We talked about that in our last sermon series when we talked about the good and beautiful God. Sin doesn't just hurt the people around us. Sin hurts us. Same thing goes with pride. But I want to point out a couple other things beyond humility and pride. And I'll, and I'll talk a little bit more about humility in a second. But some other things grab my attention this week when I, as I was studying, as I was looking through these verses and going over and over and over and over them, there were a couple other themes that really jump out to me. And I'm not going to say that they're really necessarily, I don't know this, because there's so many themes in this. But there were a couple that jumped out to me this week that I, that I really had never considered before. Maybe a major theme about this is... Uh, Going back to something I mentioned a minute ago about the, uh, about the tax collector, maybe one of the bigger meanings of this is having a contrite <laughs> and a remorseful heart, repentant hearts. A condition or the condition of our hearts that lead to real humility and not forced humility. Again, I'll go back to the series that we, pre that we went through for seven weeks. Remember when we talked about how do we change? How do we grow in Christ's likeness? How do we grow spiritually? That it ain't through self-will. That it's not through trying harder. The same principle applies here. We can't force ourselves. I hate that. We can't, for we can't force ourselves to be humble. Okay, that, that Humility don't come natural to us. We can't force ourselves to do this. Certainly, though, when we're brought to that point of being broken, of having a broken spirit, of having a contrite and a remorseful heart, that's when we are able to open up ourselves to receive that from God. 
maybe that's a major part of this story. Maybe that's a major theme of this story. Maybe a major theme of this story is just simple, simple, simple faith. Simple faith in a God who is compassionate, who's gracious, who's slow to anger, who's abounding in love and faithfulness, like the book of Exodus tells us. A God that no matter what we do, wants to remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. In other words, infinitely. Maybe that's what this is about. Maybe it's just about grace. Maybe it's just about God's desire to be in relationship with us. Maybe it's just about the fact that we're saved and that we are justified. Not by what we do, but through simple faith. When he left that scene, the tax collector was saved. When he left that scene, Jesus tells us in the scriptures that he was justified before God, that he was made right before God. And it goes on to say, oh, rather than the other guy. In other words, the other guy didn't. It wasn't the guy who did all the right stuff. It wasn't the guy that did all the right outward religious positions or disciplines or practices. It was the guy who was broken. The guy who had lived a disdainful life by all accounts. Because he was broken. He had a contrite heart. He had a remorseful heart. And he was ready to receive what God already wanted to give him. Which is a gift, by the way. Y'all know I've said that before, that all of these things really at the end of the day are gifts from God. Any, any kind of spiritual growth that we experience is a gift from God. It's stuff that God already wants to, get to, to provide to us. He wants to give us these things, but we fight him tooth and nail a lot of times. Humility just doesn't come natural to us. And uh, we have to learn, just like we learn with everything else, we have to learn how to submit to allowing God to work in and through us to that, for that transformation. Fortunately, as good Methodists, um, and I've talked to you guys about this before and I'm going to keep on talking about it, as good Methodists, we believe in these things that Wesley referred to and that we historically refer to as the means of grace. Y'all remember me talking about this stuff before? Need, need some head nods. Yes, because if you don't remember, I'm going to tell you again. We're going to be here longer. So the means of grace basically are the disciplines that we practice, to put it, to put it shortly. Prayer, scripture study, meditating on scripture, doing what we're doing here this morning, gathering together in community, uh, silence, solitude. I mean, there are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of prayer, of, of, of spiritual practices that we can engage in. And we don't do this, we don't engage in them for the sake of earning or for the sake of anything from God or, or for the sake of, you know, just because we're, because we're carrying out a task that we have to do. We do these things because they open up ourselves. It op they open us up to be able to receive what God wants to provide to us and what God wants to do through us. We, prayer, we pray for the purpose of receiving God's will for us. We read and study the Bible. We read individually and with other, with, with other groups for the purpose of allowing God to work through that scripture to do whatever it is he wants to do inside of our hearts. So that's what, that's what we believe 
That's, that's how we believe this stuff works. God gives us these gifts. He gives us these practices that we can engage in for the purpose of being able to put ourselves in a position to receive whatever it is God wants to give us or whatever transformation he wants to implement into our hearts, into our lives. So I want to familiarize you guys uh, before we leave today with, with, with one practice that I, th- that I think uh, will, will help you well, uh, when it comes to the idea of uh, letting go of our humility, letting go of our, our love, or embracing humility and, and then letting go of our pride, rather. And uh, it's, it's, some of y'all may have heard of it. Most, most of you probably have never engaged in this, but, but I started doing it myself um, not too awfully long ago, as a matter of fact. And, uh, I, and, and for me, anyway, I'm not, it's, it's not magic, by the way. It's not, it's, it's not, it's nothing, there's nothing magic about anything, that, any kind of prayer practice. But again, it just opens us up to be able to receive whatever God wants to, wants to give us. And I think this one particularly will help in the area of humility. Um, some of y'all may have heard this already, especially our former, our, we've got a number of former Catholics here. This is um, kind of popular in the Catholic Church. It's very, very popular. Uh, one, one of the churches we don't talk about uh, oftentimes is, what is, is the Orthodox Church, big O Orthodox, and that's kind of the eastern side of Christianity, but it's a major practice with, with that particular tradition, and it's called the Jesus Prayer. Anybody ever heard of this before? Anybody? Hand raised? Okay, awesome. I get to teach you something new. It's called the Jesus Prayer, and I, you know, again, I think that a, a big part of it has to go back, go back to... Uh, um, letting go of our pride and embracing the idea of humility. But the cool, one of the cool things about the Jesus prayer is that it's taken directly from the scripture. Okay? It's taken directly from verse 13, where the, fear, where the tax collector prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this particular prayer has been around for centuries. People have, have utilized it for centuries in their prayer lives. Uh, like I said, the folks in the Orthodox Church, they really, really emphasize it. And uh, that, matter of fact, they'll, they'll, they'll encourage people to uh, pray it almost like you would pray a mantra. Get into whatever your prayer position is and, and, and pray it over and over and over again uh, for a particular number of times or for a particular amount of time, something like that. I can't, I can't remember exactly how they, how they do it. Um, but you can, you, can, you, can, you can do this prayer in any number of ways. Now, let me tell you the prayer real quick, and I'll tell you, you know, some of the ways that we can, we can uh, embrace this and, and uh, practice it in our own lives. But the prayer is, is, is very, very simple, and again, it's based right here. On, it's based on verse 13, and there's a long version of it, and, and the long version says this. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, y'all can certainly see, just after saying that once, how that could bring us into a spirit of humility, right? I think that could position us to to be in the position, at least, to have contrite, remorseful hearts, those those types of things. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So you can shorten that if you want to. Generally, the way I pray it is, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, or Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me sometimes. Any way you want to shape that, whatever feels most comfortable to you, the, what matters the most is, 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 is the intent. And uh, again, it just plays, I think it helps to place, it helps place me anyway um, in a position to really, you know, let go of that pride because, yeah, I'm a sinner, you know, and I pray for God's mercy. Um, so yeah, it's a simple, simple prayer. But there's a lot of worship in this prayer. There's a lot of worship here, and there's a lot of humility present in these few seven to ten words, however many they are. 
And the way that I do it, or I can tell you several ways that you might that you might want to try try it out. Um, yeah, you can do it like the Orthodox Church teaches. You can you can do the whole thing where you say it over and over and pray pray it over and over and over again. I, I generally don't do that. Um, you can utilize it as a breath prayer for one thing. Breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Breathe out. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I do that a lot with the, with the prayers from the Psalms. Be, be still and know that I am God. Breath prayers are pretty good, pretty good exercises. Another way is just to say it throughout the day as you, uh, as you move throughout your day. Stop for just a second. Whatever it is you do, stop for just a second. Say it two or three times. You know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you something else that I've started doing recently with this particular prayer is I've, is I've put other people in the place of myself. And I'll pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on my wife. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on my son. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And I'll pray for you guys individually. Have mercy on Rudy. Have mercy on Kevin. Etc. 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 Now you want to talk about something that'll change your heart towards people? Start praying for God's mercy on people's lives individually and by name. You want to talk about changing your heart? That'll do it, brothers and sisters. So I want y'all to try that with me um, before we close today. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I just want us to say that three times. Pray, pray that three times together. Um, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we'll, we'll, we'll pray it kind of slowly and uh, do this little exercise, and I'll, um, I'll wrap us up with a prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. First of all, Lord, we thank you so much for this parable, for this story that, that, uh, that your Son has given us. God, we know that, uh, that, uh, that our sinful hearts are drawn, are drawn towards pride and are, and are pushed away from, from humility. At the same time, we recognize that you and Christ are the perfect examples of humility perfect examples of giving ourselves uh, to, uh, to your will and to the needs of other people above ourselves. Push us away, God, from self-centeredness. It, it's difficult in our culture. God, our culture loves the self. It loves the individual, and it loves, it, it, it loves pride. In contrast, God, you pull us away from these things. Help us, God, to push back against those things that pull us towards pride and pull us, God, instead towards the humility of Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.